passage this morning comes from Psalm chapter 33. I'm going to be reading verses 18 to 22. The psalmist writes, Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. Would you pray with me? Father, we praise you as those whose souls wait upon you and trust in your holy name. And God, we recognize that during this time, there are many people here who do not have any hope. And so we simply pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, and as Jeff preaches from your word, that you would stir their hearts to have hope in the only name that is worthy of it, in your son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you, Ryan. So great to see you all today. Feeling good? Feeling awake? Yeah, if you have your Bible, uh, turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Our message on hope today is going to be coming primarily out of that passage. And if you want to follow along with my sermon, just in your bulletin there is an outline of my message. That'll re- there's some blanks there. You can fill them in, and hopefully we, we'll uh, get them all in today. Um, today we're talking about Christ as the king of hope. He brought hope to a hopeless world. Hopelessness can manifest in our culture, in our lives, in a variety of forms. Uh, One of the ways I research these is abandonment or feeling forsaken. People who tend to feel abandoned or forsaken uh, tend toward a sense of despair in life. And this can happen as a result of isolation. This is what isolation does for us. If you do not write anything else from my message down, write this right here. And that is that when we get isolated, we tend to make up stories. We do. We tend to make, we tend to fill in blanks. And the reason we do that, we make up stories about ourselves, that people have abandoned us or forsaken us. Or we make up stories about other people, that they have nefarious or uh, bad intentions toward us, right? And so we tend to do that. And the reason why we fill in those blanks is because we're not plugged into the community where we have access to that information. That's the reason. And so when people go through this, they tend toward despair. They tend toward an experience of hopelessness. And then there also is this sense of failure. Now, for those of you, like myself, who have gone through seasons of life where you feel like you failed, you've blown it. Whatever you tried, you didn't make it. That can inject a kind of despairing heart in, in you as well. And if you ruminate on that, like if you just sit and just replay and re, uh, just talk through that same script and replay it in your life every day, will mess you up. That's the theological principle, yeah. So, But failure can inject a sense of despairing, a sense of hopelessness in your life as well, and powerlessness. Man, let me tell you, you know what I'm talking about. If you have ever been in a situation where you have received a diagnosis, or you've been in a situation where you, no matter how much you tried, no matter how good or smart or how much effort you brought to the situation, something in it is just out of your control. And when things are out of our control, that can lead us to a sense also of despairing and hopelessness. And then a sense of ultimate doom. This is actually a worldview. Uh, Sociologists are saying this is a new worldview that people have. It's called the survivalist doom worldview. Interesting title, 
But if you hold a worldview that says that you are a creature that exists purely as a result of unguided and undirected natural processes, and God has not invested your life with meaning and purpose and truth and value, you will tend toward hopelessness. If you think that you are not a soul inhabiting a body, if you think that you are not a self, a real person, but you're just chemistry, you're just matter in motion, you will tend toward a hopeless position or a posture in life. The American Journal of Psychiatry reported the following, that religiously unaffiliated subjects had significantly more lifetime suicide attempts and more first-degree relatives who committed suicide than subjects who endorsed a religious affiliation. Unaffiliated subjects were younger, they were less often married, more often isolated, less often had children, and had less contact with family members. Furthermore, subjects with no religious affiliation perceived fewer reasons for living, particularly fewer moral objections to self-harm. Well, of course that would be true. If you think that no one, there's no one out there, nothing out there that has invested your life objectively with purpose and meaning and value and truth, then it will lead you toward this hopeless worldview. And the World Health Organization concurred. It had similar findings, but on a, on a nation-state level. Those countries that are considered the most irreligious, that is, the highest incidence of atheism, had the highest rates of anxiety, depression, and all related disorders, including suicide. We live in a world that is hopeless, apart from Christ, apart from God. We'll talk about that in a second, but what is hope to begin with? Paul tells us this in Romans 8, 24. He says, now in this hope we were saved, but hope that you can see is no hope at all, right? The hope that is seen is not hope, because who hopes for what he sees? You see, the nature of hope is that it is an optimistic expectation of something that hasn't been fully delivered yet. It's, that, it's the view that better days are coming. Something is on the horizon, God has brought me some things, and that is good, but there's something yet in my life that hasn't been delivered. So I don't hope that someday I'm going to get married. I already am. I don't hope someday to be in the ministry and be a pastor. I already am. Let me tell you what I do hope for, pretty much on a daily basis. I hope for revival and redemption of this community. I'm praying daily, almost daily, that the Holy Spirit will be poured out in a great awakening in Idaho Falls. Yes. So that people who've walked in darkness, in great spiritual darkness, will see the light of His grace and His truth and be changed by it forever. That's what I hope for. And I don't see it yet. But I'm hoping every day for it. Now, Paul refers to our hope very curiously in Ephesians chapter 4, as one hope. Now, there are lots of things I'm hoping for. I'm, I've got some goals. I live an aspirational life. I, there are some boxes I want to check between now and the time I leave this world. So there are lots of things that I hope for. But in, essentially, in the Christian life, you and I have one hope. That's what he's talking about there in Ephesians chapter 4. So we're going to talk about that today. What is the one hope? Let's unpack that. Let's make some observations about it. Number one, a life without God is a life without hope. A life without God is ultimately a life without hope. And we're going to start in the summary verse, which is verse 12. 
of Ephesians 2. We'll start in the summary verse, and then we'll sort of back into it. This is at the time when you were without Christ, um, you were excluded from the citizenship of Israel, and you were foreigners to the covenants and the promise of the Old Testament. You were without hope and without God in the world. What is he saying here? He's saying when you're without God, you are without ultimately hope. And so he talks about spiritual death. He says, you were dead in your transgressions. You were dead in your transgressions. And so we have to take a second to define what do we mean to be dead in sin? What does it mean for us to be dead in our transgressions? Well, it has to do, spiritual death has to do firstly and foremostly with a severing of relationship. In the Old Testament, relationships were severed and you were considered dead to the community or dead to the family. Remember what God said to Adam and Eve. He said, do not eat of that tree of death the tree of knowledge of good and evil because it's going to bring death. And remember what he said specifically, because the day you eat it, you will surely die. Now, did they bite the fruit and just bam, just keel over? No, they didn't. They ate the fruit and they were immediately exiled from the garden of God's presence. They were exiled from the family. And so when an ancient Jew or ancient Near Easterner talks about death, this is kind of primarily the picture that they have. This is the the picture that Jesus, Jesus uses. We've said it before. I'll remind you in Luke chapter 15 in the parable of the prodigal son. Remember that story. There is a second born son, a second born son. And he comes into his father's office and he demands his share of the inheritance. What's wrong with that? Two things. One, he's a second-born son. He doesn't have any. And two, the father is not dead yet. In this culture, it is a very dishonoring thing to demand an inheritance from a living uh, parent. <laughs> that would be a high dishonor. But the father obliges him. So he gives him half of the estate. He runs off. He blazes his own trail. He gets to a foreign Greek city where he just squanders all the wealth and riotous, raucous living, just partying all night, man. And then pretty soon he's out of money and he finds himself temping. He gets a temp job for a swine farmer and he's sitting there feeding these pigs and he's so impoverished and he's so poor that as he's watching these pigs eat these pods, the scripture says he longed to eat the pig's gruel. And then he had a sudden epiphany as he's there in the slop and in the mud and feeding these pigs and he's a Jew, he's not supposed to touch a pig. And he's, unde- he's, he's now defiled, and he has a remarkable revelation, an epiphany. He says, even my father's slaves, like even the slaves who live in my father's house are treated better than this. I know. I'll go back and ask my father if I could just be a slave in his house. And off he goes. And as he's coming up over the horizon, the father who is standing at the edge of the property sees a familiar silhouette coming over the hill, and he runs out to greet his son and picks him up and welcomes him back into the fold, welcomes him back into the family and has the the family ring put on his finger and the family robe put on his finger to identify him. You are a son, not a slave. And then who gets mad about that? Yeah, the firstborn. And what's his objection? Hold on. I you're you're slaughtering the fattened calf for him? I never so much as got a scrawny lamb. Like I didn't even get a goat. 
to celebrate with my friends, and I've been here every day. I never went anywhere. I did everything that you told me to do. And what is the father's response? This is your brother. He was dead, and now he's alive. And in a Jewish world, you could be dead to the family through sin and through disobedience and through leaving the family. That's death. So the first thing you need to understand about spiritual death is that it is a relational death. It's a social death. Adam and Eve are put outside of the garden. But it's also spiritual death is a deadening of our spiritual faculties. We have been incapacitated. Our capacity to commune with God at a deep level, at a Garden of Eden level, that has been diminished. It's been destroyed almost. Now, here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that a person who is without God is utterly immoral. I'm not saying that atheists who don't believe in God are utterly without morality. Some atheists do live very moral lives. I'm also not saying that a person who is without God is utterly aimless. Many people who are not believers in God or not believers in Jesus, they live on purpose. They live lives with meaning and purpose. What I am saying is that you can't enjoy meaning and purpose unless you borrow it first from my worldview. Because the atheist worldview does not supply it. It doesn't supply the expectation of a life of meaning and a life of purpose. Go ahead and get that. We'll wait. Go ahead. (laughs) <laughs> it, doesn't, it doesn't supply an expectation of a life of meaning and purpose. You have to borrow that from the Judeo-Christian worldview. Yes, you can be a moral person as an unbeliever in God. Sure, that's true, but you can't be moral if there is no God. Ultimately, if there is no God, you can't be moral. So you don't have to believe in Him to experience morality or purpose and meaning. And I'm not saying that a person who is without God can't have a fairly good marriage or a great marriage or experience moments of joy and personal satisfaction and fulfillment. No, 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 no. You don't need to believe in God to experience the blessings that God has provided through his provenient grace. You don't need to believe in God to to benefit from God. Not at all. That's not what I'm saying. But here here is what I'm saying. I'm going to put it up on the screen. The unbeliever is not utterly without these things, but they are ultimately without these things. Because ultimately, in the final analysis of life, of one's life, if you do not have God and you do not have God in Christ, you are without these things. They will be taken away from you. Because no matter how much fun or pleasure or productivity you manage to wring out of this life, to squeeze out of this finite life, ultimately there is the matter of your eternal destiny. Where will you spend eternity? Ephesians 2, 1 and 3. Now let's go back to what he has to say here. He says, and although you were dead in your transgressions and sins. So you were dead. You you were cut off from the family. You were exiled from the garden of God's grace and provision and salvation. You were dead in your sins, in which you formerly lived according to this world's present path, according to the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the ruler of the spirit that is now energizing the sons of disobedience. I'll explain that in a minute. Among whom all of us also formerly lived out our lives in the cravings of flesh, of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. That, those three verses, that's one of the most densely packed three verses in the New Testament, and he tells us what spiritual death is. Here's what it is. It is death through disobedience. 
Remember, in the garden narrative, God says this is a parameter. You cannot eat. You shall not eat of that tree. And the day you do, judgment will come, the judgment of death. Yes, they eventually die physically, but they die relationally immediately. And death through disobedience. We have followed the path of the world. This is the path of the world. So chapter 2, verse 2a, he says, You formerly lived according to this world's present path. What's the pattern? What's the path of the world? It's continued disobedience to God's commands, to his moral decrees. This is important, folks. This is important. They have continued to just disobey. My uncle, uh, Danny, died of a massive brain aneurysm. I miss him all the time. I was really close with him. But he, in his 50s, in his mid-50s, he got up one day and went to the restroom, and when he came back out into the hallway, he just had a massive aneurysm and dropped dead. He was gone. A few years earlier than that, they took out a softball-sized tumor from his lung because for 30 years before that, he smoked like a chimney. I mean, he was a chain smoker. And I remember sitting in my mom's living room one day, and it was after his surgery, and they had taken out a couple of his ribs, and so he kind of had a little gimpy walk. And I remember him sitting there, and my brother was a smoker at the time, and he reached over and grabbed my brother's cigarette, and he just began to puff on it. And I was like, Danny, you're stupid. We were a close family. I was like, moron, what are you doing? Why are you doing that? I mean, the thing that gave you the cancer in the first place, the thing that will take you from this world, you're continuing to just feed it. And this is what a continuous life of disobedience is like. I mean, you're born into the world in a state in which the wrath of God, the judgment of God remains on humanity, and then you and I just keep dragging, man. We keep keep taking drags, and we just keep feeding the cancer that is going to kill us. And so that's what he's talking about. He said, you once lived according to the pattern of this world. Now, believers do no longer, we no longer subsist. We no longer breathe that air. And it's death through evil desires. Paul says, we have followed through on our innate evil desire. We have followed the prince of the power of the air. Now, let me explain that for a second. From Genesis to Revelation, it teaches that a human being that has fallen into sin is perfectly capable. Listen, you are perfectly capable of messing up your own life without the devil. (laughs) You don't need him. Uh, You'll just do it sooner with him. The scripture teaches that, that these spiritual forces in heavenly realms, these powers of the air, what they have done is come along and they have taken advantage of the fact that we have these internal desires that war in our members against the moral law of God. And what they've done is exacerbated the situation. They just said, hey, let me show you how to do that better. (laughs) Let me, this is why Paul talks about in Romans chapter one, this is what he says. He says, they invent ways of doing evil. And so the spiritual forces, the powers of the air that is now energizing the sons of disobedience, this is what he's referring to. And so we follow this path of the world, and then we follow the passions of the sinful nature, and then death resulting in our demise. Look at verse 3b, and we were by nature children of wrath. What does he mean here? It means you were born into a situation that is already cursed. You're born into Adam. And when you're born into Adam, you're born into a fallen state. You and I inherit his sinful nature. So we have this internal problem because we've inherited his sinful nature, but then we also inherit his environment. We've been cast out of the garden. The world is harsh and it's judged and it's cursed. And ultimately, you and I, apart from Christ, we will die and you will stay dead. 
and your soul will spend eternity in hell. And that curse, that judgment, that wrath is already upon us. And Jesus came to save us from that. So apart from God and Christ, we were hopelessly lost in the world, adrift, abandoned, understanding that we live according to the principles and the path of this world. Number two, Jesus redeems us from our past. And he gives us new life. (laughs) I mean, the good news is that Jesus redeems all that. He redeems it all. He redeems us from our past, and then he gives us the life in place of death. Death is the reason why we're hopeless. Death is the reason why we have despair. And Jesus comes along and gives us in place of that new life. And he forgives us of the past, and he cleanses us of the past, and he writes all the wrongs in the past. Look at verses 4 through 7. He says, but God, most important phrase in the entire Bible. Yes, that was true. Death reigned, but God, who is rich, who is Daddy Warbucks, in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us. Even though we were dead in our transgressions, we were dead in our sins, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you are saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly realms in Christ Jesus to demonstrate in the coming ages the surpassing wealth of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. That is a mind-blowing passage. God who was rich in mercy, God who lavishly gave us his grace and his mercy reached out to us while we were still sinners, while we were still enemies of the cross and dead in our sins. My dad, uh, years ago, when I was 14 years old, he, I told you guys he passed away from a car accident. I remember the day of his funeral, I walked up to his casket, and my dad looked very, he was in very rare form in the casket. It was an open casket, and uh, I very rarely, except for Sunday mornings, I very rarely saw my dad in his best Sunday blue suit. My dad uh, was a welder by trade. My dad had scars, all of his crisscrossing scars all over his hands and his arms from just, wel- just sparks in the welding shop. Uh, my dad had this weird thumb where he, in a, in a shop accident, he had lost two-thirds of his thumb. And then I just remember as a kid, him walking around the house for months with his, with his hand in his shirt, underneath his shirt, because they were grafting the skin from his belly onto his, onto his thumb. And so his thumb just kind of didn't bend. It didn't work right. Sorry to make you throw up in your mouth there, but... Uh, my dad was blind in one eye because he forgot to put his shield down in the welding shop one day and a spark hit his eye and he was legally blind for the rest of his life. I remember him coming home with a patch and screaming and cussing and beating us all, you know, just because he made a mistake. And uh, so that's how I remember my dad. My dad uh, had, had scars, all, like I said, he had scars all over his arms. He also was balding. Like he started balding in his early 20s, like someone else on our, our pastoral staff. So. And... Uh, <laughs> But he refused to do the comb over. I'm proud of young men who don't do that. He refused to do like the comb over and he didn't get a toupee. Uh, he just kind of let it go. And he was, he was a handsome guy. I remember in high school, uh, my girlfriends and just girls we would hang out with would say, man, your dad is such a good looking older guy. You know, I'm like, stop being a creep. Stop being weird, you know. <laughs> But it just always bothered him that his hair was receding, and so he had, a lot of, he had a lot of issues. He had a lot of problems. But the only thing you can do with a corpse when it's laying in the coffin is dress it up. 
That's the only thing you could do with it. When a, when a person is dead, they don't have life. That's their problem. And you could put their best Sunday suit on. You could paint up their face and put a little rouge on their cheeks and in their, their lips, but they can't do anything. Whatever problems the dead man had before he died, he only has one problem now. And when you are born into this world as a child of wrath and you are spiritually dead, whatever else you try to solve in your life, listen to me, you only have one real problem. And if you have a God problem, God is your only solution. And so he says, this is the, look at the motivation for why God does this. Now, yes, it is true that God sovereignly decrees the world in all of its fullness and complexity from eternity past, right? So that is true. We believe that. But look at what it says the motivation is. Look at what it says. It says, God, who was motivated by his rich mercy because he loved us. And if you don't remember anything else today, just remember you are loved. And you are loved so profoundly. You are loved so deeply. You are loved more than you could possibly comprehend because God loves you through and through. And that's what motivated his desire to send his son to die for you in your place. And then he says the second reason is to bring attention to his desire. He wants all creation to see the trophies of his unmatched grace, the trophies of his unequaled grace, to demonstrate to all creation the extravagance of his kindness toward those who believe. The biblical word for trophy is the word crown. If you're in the ancient world, the way you got a trophy is you won a race and you got a crown. And you wore your little wreath. You wore your little crown. And God has many trophies. And in the book of Revelation, it says all believers are going to gather before his throne. What are we going to do? Cast our crowns at his feet. Because they're not our trophies. What is a trophy? What is a crown? A trophy is evidence of your victory. It's evidence that you achieved something. But the trophy in the Christian life is the Christian. It's God's trophy that he has achieved it and he has done it. These are his trophies, and and what he says here is that he wants to display to all creation his magnanimous grace and demonstrate to the coming ages the surpassing wealth of his grace toward us and his kindness in Jesus. Number three, God's gracious salvation calls for a response of trusting acceptance. So now, if God has done this much, (laughs) I mean, if God has done this much, what does it call for? I mean, I think it demands a, a, a response of trusting acceptance. This is what he means when he says salvation by grace through faith. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, it says, For by grace you are saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves. It doesn't come from you. It's the gift of God. Are you going to give anyone a gift this Christmas? Are you going to give them a gift? Are you going to make them earn it? Some of you will. <laughs> Santa Claus will. If, if you're naughty and you're not on the nice list, you're not getting a gift. But God in his mercy and his kindness and his lavish grace, his extravagant grace, he gives us the free gift of salvation while we were enemies of him. And it is not from works. It doesn't come from a life of doing good works so that no one could boast, so that I can't stand before God and say, see what a good life I led See how good I was? No, no one is ever going to be able to make that boast before God. For we are his work. We are his workmanship, having been created in Christ Jesus for good works that God prepared beforehand so we may do them. So I want to help you to understand what the workflow is here. It's from God to us and then out to the world. That's the flow. I'll give you an analogy of this little children. 
Little children are, to me, just a joy. I love them. When I see your babies, it makes me want my babies again. I can't help it. I just want to, I hate to say this, but I want to grab every one of your babies, just kiss them all over their little cute faces. I love it. I love their little fat cheeks because it reminds me of my kids and their little fat cheeks. And when they're little, they're so cute and they just constantly say funny things, don't they? Like I remember Carly, I had her, she was so tiny and she was sitting on my arm and I was walking down the hallway upstairs and carrying her to bed at night about 7.30 and we're going down the hallway, and we had a bunch of pictures in the hallway of us from, from years past. And she stopped, and she said, Daddy, who is that? And I said, what do you mean? That's, that's me. It was our wedding picture. Like, I was 60 pounds lighter then. And, and she goes, that's you? I go, yeah. She goes, that doesn't look like you. And I said, why? She said, your face looks different. I said, what looks different about my face? She said, I think you outgrew it. That's what she said. (laughs) Ten minutes later, I'm posting that stuff on Facebook now. (laughs) Right? They say the cutest things. What what is a kid doing? A kid comes into the world and they're learning. They're really mimicking adulthood. That's what they're doing. That's what makes them so cute is they're mimicking the affectation of being adults. And they're saying funny things and you love it and you cherish it in your heart. But then they grow and they learn and beyond the toddler age, they begin to achieve things. They begin to achieve things in sports and in academics and then they leave high school and they go off to college or trade school. And hopefully they lead gospel-centered, God-honoring lives. That's what we all hope for them. Now, when you gave birth to that kid, you did not do it because they had already done all of that. You gave birth to them so that they could do all of that. And this is why it is so important, folks, to understand salvation as rebirth. John chapter 3, Nicodemus comes to Jesus, and he says, and he strikes up a theological conversation with Jesus, and Jesus said, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven unless you are born again. When we are born by the Holy Spirit into the family of God, then we can do the works and learn the things and contribute to the gospel and do everything that God has planned and destined for us to do. But you got to be born. New birth comes before achievement. The birth comes before the doing. And this is why it is salvation by grace. This This is why it is a work that is done to you, not a work that you do and present to God. Another analogy might help you is a widget. Most of your pockets today is a cell phone, some kind of smartphone or something like this. This thing is a marvelous, wonder. This this is a miracle of modern, modern technology. A miracle of modern technology. It is the result of some genius designers and manufacturers who put this thing together. Now, it can do a lot of things, but somebody had to make it first. And this is why he says, here's what you are. You are his work. This genius designer and manufacturer, he made you in Christ. You function, you work. There's a lot of things you can do and you will do and he's planned for you to do, but you are his work. You are his design, the product of his genius design and manufacturing. Romans 3 puts it like this, 21 and 23. It says, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God, although it is attested by the law and the prophets, has been disclosed. Namely, the righteousness of God that is through faithfulness, the faithfulness of Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction between Jew and Gentile, 
For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but they are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Do you see the gist there? The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the message of this book, it's not a self-help program. It's not a self-improvement program. It's not like these are the seven steps to improving your life for eternity. (laughs) That's not what it is. It's a rescue mission. It's fundamentally a rescue mission. This is what I like. Uh, Ryan has said something I really like. This rescue mission involves God coming to rescue not people who are drowning, but people who have already drowned. He's coming to raise us from the dead. Remember the miners in Chile? the Chilean miners who were trapped under the earth for eight weeks. Their situation was desperate. This was about a year or so ago. Their situation was desperate, food rations running low. The fatigue was setting in. They managed to punch a hole through so they could communicate with them. They, they dug two holes. The first one was a communication hole. It was to tell these Chilean miners who were trapped underneath the earth and could not rescue themselves and could not free themselves to say, hey, You may not have known this, but there's someone up top who's been working tirelessly to rescue you, working tirelessly to get there, hold on to hope, and you know that infused so much hope in their hearts. And the second hole they drilled was for rescue. And they did through through a wire or something, a cable, they brung one up at a time. And every time a Chilean miner would come up to the surface after two months, their families would just embrace them. They were these beautiful family reunions, and the last guy up, he came up, he was the last one to meet there, to greet him was his wife and his mistress, who did not know each other. Don't blame him, I would have come up last too, <laughs> right? I mean, I would have I kind of been like, hey, I'll stay down here a couple more weeks if you don't mind. But can you imagine the miners? saying to the rescuers who are talking through this hole in the ground, who are communicating with messages through the hole in the ground, sending a message back up to say, don't worry about it. We got this. (laughs) We'll figure out a way out of this pit. We'll figure out a way to get ourselves back up to the surface. And that's what what it looks like when a person who believes and works righteousness is trying to do with God. You are in a pit. You cannot get out. And God is the one who is taking the initiative to rescue you. And so what this calls for is a response of trusting, trusting faith, an acceptance by faith. Here's what uh, Paul told the Thessalonians. He said in 1 Thessalonians 1, 9 and 10, he says, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who rescues us from the coming wrath. This free gift of salvation is a rescue mission for those who are trapped and cannot do for themselves what only God can do for them. Number four, we look forward to the redemption of all things. So we have this hope that God is going to give us life in place of death, that he's going to give us relationship with him in place of estrangement, in place of exile. And then we have this hope for the end of the world, for the end days. And I want to read you a passage that is just remarkable in what it claims. If you don't remember the passage by heart, remember where it is. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. This is what Paul tells the Thessalonian Christians. He says, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters. In other words, we don't want you to be ignorant. We don't want a bunch of ignorant Christians who don't know what the promise is concerning those who fall asleep. Asleep is just a metaphor for death so that you will not grieve like the rest who have no hope. 
Christians do grieve. We grieve the loss of our loved ones, but we grieve with hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again in the same way through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. What's he talking about here? If you have ever doubted the doctrine of the afterlife, it's right here. Who is Jesus coming with? Those who have died in Christ. He is bringing them with him. And in verse 15, it says, For we say this to you by a word of revelation from the Lord. We who are still alive at the Lord's coming will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with an archangel's voice, and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ, it's so loud, it will wake the dead. And they rise first. And then we, who are alive, who are still alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Are you worried about these words? I've met Christians over the, over, over, uh, the years who have said, man, I'm, I'm kind of worried about Jesus coming and catching you doing what? No, no, no. Don't worry about it. Encourage each other with it. These are encouraging words. And Jesus will return as a royal announcement. You need to know that the language that he's using here is Caesar royal announcement language. Josephus, the Jewish historian, uses the same language to describe the arrival of Titus and Vespasian after they conquered Jerusalem. And how do they come into the parade in Rome? He says the parade was so grand and it was so glorious that it was, it was indescribable. And so this coming of the Lord is described in language like that. But there are some tangible things here that you and I could hold on to. One, the clouds. Jesus is coming in the clouds. Remember Acts chapter 1. You remember that passage where Jesus ascends through the clouds. The clouds hide him from their sight, and he ascends to the throne of the Father. That means two things. One, a literal cloud did envelop Jesus, and he was hid from their sight. How do we know that? The disciples are standing there just gawking, and the angel literally has to get their attention and say, why do you stand here looking into the heavens? This Jesus who left in this manner will return in like manner. He will return the same way he left. But then that also is imagery. That is a figure of speech, meaning Jesus has ascended above the clouds to the throne of heaven. That's what it means. So when he comes back in the cloud, it's a cloud of salvation and judgment. That's what it is. And then we meet him in the air. The word meet here is used in the New Testament only in context where a person goes outside of a city to meet a, a traveling dignitary or an important person and then returns immediately with them. John 12, 13, the residents go outside of Jerusalem to meet Jesus and return with him in a triumphal entry. In Acts 28, 15, the Roman Christians come out to the form of APS 45 miles outside of the city. They meet Paul. They return immediately with him. In Matthew 25, Jesus gives the parable of the virgins. And the parable of the virgins, the five virgins who were ready, who had their, their lamps trimmed with oil, were called to go outside of the city. They met the bridegroom, and they returned immediately to the town with him. And so what you need to know is that the hope of the church, the hope of the world, is salvation in Christ and the glorious world-writing salvation of our God in his return. Let me read it to you, Titus 2.13. It says, while we await the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is your hope. Let me ask you, what are you hoping in today? What do you hope? Because ultimately, this is the one hope. The one hope is salvation in Jesus. 
is his return to right the world, to set the world right. And if you're dead in your sins today, you only have one real problem. Whatever problems you think you have in your life, you really only have one. You're dead. And Christ has made us alive by a gracious offer of salvation, calling for a response of trusting acceptance. And every believer who has received this new life, who has accepted this by faith, this free gift by faith, has an unspoilable hope, a sure expectation of future resurrection or future meeting Christ in the air. Do you hope in that today? I, I have a mission. I have a goal. This is my hope is to reorient as many people in my time as a pastor as I can to having this kingdom mindset, to thinking about this sure hope. Do you have it? Will you pray with me? Let's pray. Bow your heads, close your eyes. If you're here today and you're not a believer, you say, I'm not a believer. I mean, I hear you talking about all this stuff, the princes of the powers of the air and the death and resurrection and the hope of Jesus returning at the end of the world, and I haven't believed it. But today, you're realizing that this is, your only, this is your only hope. You have no other. And you have many reasons to despair, actually, if this is not true. Because if we have hope for only this life, we are to be pitied. We're to be pitied above, above all men. And will you receive salvation this morning? The scripture says in Romans 10, it's actually quite simple. It's quite simple. It starts with confession. It starts with confessing something that you believe. And you say, I believe in my heart and I confess with my mouth, I am a sinner. And my sin separates me from a holy, righteous God. And being separated from a holy, righteous God, God has now done something about it. God sent his one and only son to die on a cross to bring me back into relationship with him, to save me from the coming wrath. And he rose again bodily on the third day to prove it, to vindicate his claims, and I believe it. Do you believe it this morning? You say, yes, I believe it. And you believe it in your heart and you confess it with your mouth, you're saved. You're born again. The Holy Spirit is doing a work in your spirit to make you spiritually alive, to revive that spiritual faculty that has been deadened and darkened in sin. Will you receive it today? You're a believer here, and you say, I do know Jesus, but I have times of despair. I have times in which I kind of feel hopeless, and I feel like there are some situations in my life this morning are hopeless. I do not want to make light of your situation. I want you to know that the church is here for you, God's word is here for you, God's presence is with you in the midst of it, but ultimately, those situations are not your hope. Will you just be reminded this morning that your hope is resurrection in Jesus Christ? And on resurrection morning, when God calls you out of the grave, you will go be with him. Do you believe that today? Will you just be encouraged by it? In Jesus' name we pray, amen.